0: Hello and welcome to part two of episode 17 of the Two Brits, One Orange Ball podcast. Today we're joined by Bulls insider for NBC Sports Chicago, Casey Johnson. In this second part of the episode, we'll cover Derrick Rose's tenure with the Chicago Bulls, including going into detail about what it was like to cover his many injuries and the split of public opinion about whether he should play or not after returning having been out for nearly a year with his torn ACL that he sustained in the 2012 player matchup against the Philadelphia 76ers. We'll cover Jimmy Butler's fallout with the Chicago Bulls, GB great Luol Deng and what he meant to the Bulls organization, as well as going deeper into Casey's London 2012 experience where he met the late Jimmy Rogers after turning up to Bricks and Rec to do an interview about Luol Deng. And finally, we'll speak to Casey about covering the second Bulls three-peat and how reporting on the ground at the time differed from what we saw and was shown in the Last Arts documentary. So let's dive in to part two. But Moving on to Derrick Rose uh, and the Bulls' years there. When we were watching the documentary on Derrick Rose recently, we, we saw that when he was drafted, you said it felt like the Bulls had, it basically felt like they were being reborn after obviously all the years of being up and down after, after Jordan. But do you have a favorite Derrick Rose moment?
1: My favorite anecdote, and I've written this before, it's actually one of my favorite moments of all my years of Bulls coverage was his MVP speech. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there's a, there's a moment when he turns and addresses his mother, Brenda, who it's pretty well documented, raised him and his brothers as a single mom in a very difficult section of Chicago. And I'm telling you, man, I was in that room and it literally felt like they were the only two people in the room. And you can see the emotion on his face if you watch the speech on youtube he actually starts crying or getting a little misty eyed and i was actually sitting pretty close to brenda she was a few seats away from me and she was dabbing at her eyes with a with a handkerchief to be uh present for that and to be a witness of that I- i'm actually getting kind of goosebumps now just remembering it because it was it felt like such a privilege that you were in on this incredibly intimate moment that they were sharing with the rest of the world um, and it was incredibly eloquent. I always say like, anyone who thinks Derek Rose isn't a good interview, just go watch that speech, man. He's incredible in that, in that speech. So, um, and then to, to cap it off, I feel incredibly lucky because, um, I've been working really hard to try to get an interview with Brenda. She did not like attention. You can see where Derek gets it from. And finally, um, she had agreed to do two interviews that day. One with David Aldridge, who at the time worked for, uh. TNT, uh, so that was her TV interview, and then my, with me for the when I worked for the Chicago Tribune, and she was a fantastic and really funny interview. So that was a really cool day because not only did I get to witness that MVP speech, but then I got to interview Brenda uh, Rose afterwards. So I've been doing this a long time. I don't get fired up about much, but you can see I got kind of fired up about that because that that, that was an incredible moment in Bulls history, man. That speech, I, I I still I still love it. I still love talking about it. Um, and I, I just I always say like I, I'm the lucky one. I I get paid to like watch and wit- and write about these things. <laughs> it's like you know, fans are into this stuff. I get I get paid to, to watch it and write about it. So I it, I'm the lucky one, you know. So that, that's the cool part about all this.
0: No, it's amazing, man. And um, I think it was was it Jason Goff for the um the why not quote? Was it him that asked that question? I think I think he was talking about that on the balls talk. I could be wrong there. No, uh, why just- not me for MVP? Yeah, was that was that him
1: that, that was like mark shanowski who also used to work at nbc sports chicago the former pre and post game host. it was at a you, you uh, mean why can't i be mvp the league? quote that,
0: yeah i thought that was jason but i could have got that wrong i, I think Oh no, yeah was it was mark shanowski was
1: that it was at a, a press conference uh on media day before the 10 11 season at the old borough center i was two seats away from mark when you asked that question so yeah oh, that's, wow. a, that's a memorable quote as well in, in bulls history so
0: Yeah, man. Again, two two quotes from the guy who, as you say, not many people think is very good at interviews. Without making this a Derry Rose history lesson for those that aren't Bulls fans on this podcast. Obviously, yeah, he was, as you mentioned before, in terms of where he was from in Chicago. He was born in Inglewood, an area in Chicago that between 2001 to 2016 had, according to the documentary, 4,282 shootings. That was recorded via the stadium. Um, in that in that documentary, you described the scene of his first injury in the first round of the playoffs against the Sixers as a PR nightmare by setting a date for him to return to the front office. Something that ended up splitting the city as it goes into in much more detail in the documentary and half in terms of their viewpoint on on what Derek should do at that time, which obviously I'm a big Bulls fan, but I was never in Chicago to kind of hear that or know about the, the viewpoints that were being put around at that point. But where did you stand about that at the time? And what was it like reporting on something which was so sensitive, I suppose, in, in a lot of ways?
1: Well, I mean, nobody cares about this, but it was a nightmare to report because it became a daily soap opera and just to ridiculous levels. I will quickly add though, that I, I don't wanna put all this in the front office. Let's not forget, Derek Rose's camp filled, filmed an ad campaign called The Return to promote his shoe and then didn't return. So, I mean, it was it was poorly handled from a lot of sides, okay? Yeah. Um, yeah so i and look here's where i stand on it though particularly you're like history has proven derek rose right not only in this age of load management but guys taking a full year to recover from serious injuries whether it be clay thompson or kevin durant or who had what have you here's where i stand like the player knows his body everybody else shut up you know it's like (laughs) you know like who 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 are we to say like oh derek should come back and then there's the story okay well the doctors cleared him which was obviously leaked you know from the organizational standpoint to try to put some pressure on derek to play that's at least the theory but you know here's what i say to that the doctors cleared him to play if he felt comfortable doing so he didn't feel comfortable doing so end of story it's his career it's his knee it's his body there is no other story to this that's where i stand on this and that's where i stood uh privately behind the scenes while I was covering this story. As I was covering the story, I was working for the Chicago Tribune, so my job was just to be an objective reporter and just cover what was happening. I will share one funny anecdote talking about the ridiculousness of this, though, and I think this is out there so other people might have heard this, but there was one day where some rapper that i never heard of because I'm not a rap dude, even though I'm really into music, called Waka Flocka Flame tweeted that Derrick Rose was coming back that night, and we actually asked Tom Thibodeau, at the shoot around that morning if he, if the rapper Waka Flocka Flame was accurate. And so <laughs> we are asking Tom Thibodeau about a rapper named Waka Flocka Flame. I'm like, what are we doing here? <laughs> this, is, this is absurd, man. But the, there, there was a funny anecdote to it because um, Tom Tom was actually pretty playful about it. He was in a good mood and he was like, uh, "Who? oh, does he, does he have that song, somebody must have prepped him for it because he's he's like there's a song i guess this rapper had called hardened da paint like and and uh, he's like oh i like this guy because it's like you know he's good in the paint and good defending or something but it was just it was it was it was was yeah it was a circus (laughs) it was a circus to cover and the other thing i would say is that this is another aspect of the story that sometimes gets a little under publicized and this is derek certainly his right because it was part of his rehab but he would come out every game at home and do these full lather workouts to like, you know, and it was part of his rehab, but he would do it while fans were in the building. So everybody would be out there with their phones, filming these pregame workouts. He'd be in a full drenched sweat and then he wouldn't play. So it was like, it was just, it was just feeding the narrative. And Derek doesn't care about that stuff. So he was like, I, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing for my knee. But it just, from a media standpoint, it became breathless. It was not a pleasant story to cover at all but if you're asking for my personal opinion it's as simple as what i said before his knee his body his career everybody else Shut up! In my opinion,
2: <laughs>
0: so. yeah, hundred percent agree, man. Uh,
2: the last thing on on D Rose, and then we'll, we'll move on, Casey. But um, during the filming of, of the documentary, uh, he he kind of covers some of those those horrific moments, and, and he gets a call, obviously, from his agent, DJ Armstrong, and and the news breaks that that he's been been traded to New York. Now, one of the things that really struck me w- was just the sheer emotion that's captured in that moment. And in all honesty, I'm not I'm not a Bulls fan, but I just felt for him and and I got emotional watching in terms of like going back to it, how how did you kind of feel in the end when he was originally finally traded? I mean, you know, for all those, everything, everything that's transpired, all those, those bad injuries, the fact that essentially he's had a city's hopes of a championship on his shoulders and then to be traded to New York. I mean, what, what was your feeling at that time?
1: Well, I mean, when you say my feeling, like you're asking for like my, like uh I, and don't take offense to this but like it almost sounds like you're asking like my reaction like from a fan level i always look at things from a journalistic level so sorry so like, my, my bad, no, yeah, no no yeah. no no <laughs> but i'm gonna i'm gonna answer your question because it's a good question but because i have several thoughts on it but my point is like when you're asking me to remember that moment i'm remembering it from like a work standpoint like that's how i that's how i'm wired i'm, I'm a journalist i'm a reporter and what i remember is that uh, somebody tweeted that the trade was imminent and I was lucky enough to actually break the details of the trade, the the, the pieces of it. So like, um, uh, that, that's where I, my, my, my mind goes to. And then I just remember that day, it was like incredible because you understood the significance of it for the franchise. And then they called it an emergency press conference. And I remember like, I just got back from a run and I had showered. So like, I'm scrambling like shower and get to the the Advocate Center in time for this press conference. And the whole time your phone's blowing up and you're talking to your sources and you're checking Twitter. And so I just remember from a work standpoint, how crazy it was. But to answer your question, of course you understood the significance of it. Of course you understood the magnitude of it. Of course you understood what it meant to not only Derek Rose, but to the city of Chicago, because you can't can't separate those two. Derek means a lot to this city, okay? He just does. And then of course you understand what it means to the franchise because it's a big deal to trade a former mvp and the former number one overall pick of, of the team particularly since he's from here so um yeah and i i'll also say this like i was fortunate enough to get the detail in my news story that day about that anecdote you bring up from the documentary i i i got the detail that he was overcome with emotion when he was told he was being traded he was devastated by that trade and i found i only watched that documentary one time because i was you know, interviewed for it and when I'm interviewed for something I really watch it but I did watch that one and I thought it was remarkable that they got that moment on film just amazingly powerful and you're right it is emotional but it didn't surprise me because I I'd already been told it happened I just thought it was amazing that you got to actually see it because you can see how overwhelmed he he really is so yeah huge moment in Bull's history and um I remember what, talking to somebody that day you know pretty connected to him who um who said uh, they traded the wrong guy, you know, and obviously, you know, that was the Rose Butler kind of schism was starting to to form and they, you know, Jimmy ended up doing fine. So it's not like, I don't know who's right or who's wrong, but that's, that was this person's opinion. And um, it just, yeah, big, big story in in Bulls history for sure.
0: Absolutely, man. Like, yeah, I was watching the playoff matchup when we, when he hit the buzzer beater over Cleveland and Tristan Thompson, I think just yesterday. And I think you compare him in that game to when he was at New York, and he obviously had to go through so much in that period uh, mentally that he just looks like a completely different player. Like, I know, you know, Mark will have watched it a lot closer than I did it in the next days, but um, yeah, it was it was obviously, yeah, a, a particularly difficult um, situation for, for anyone that's kind of connected to him in the city of Chicago, I'm sure, as well. Um, but before we move on, on a much lighter note, um, to Luol and and Van Gordon years, I want to I want to ask your thoughts on: Will we really that close to getting Chris Bosh and LeBron in two thousand and eleven? Like Bosh said, he gave like a verbal commitment to the Bulls. And your friend, uh, Nick Fidel was talking about that, I think, and then later confirmed on the, the JJ Reddit podcast, this is Chris Boss talking about and said that JJ Reddit did also sign an offer sheet at that point, which again, I might have just not been paying as much attention at that point. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, it depends on how you say how close, because they, what needed to happen. And this has come out over the years is that, uh, Luol Deng need to get traded to the Clippers. And they had talks with the Clippers about trading Luol Dang there. If they were able to trade Luol oh, wow. Dang to the Clippers, the, the big three would have been here. I reported pretty strongly in the Tribune at the time how close that was. and every, I remember a lot of people like coming, rapping at me saying, oh no, this was the side of the Olympics that they were going to Miami. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Dwayne Wade has said as much since then. Chris Bosh has said as much since then. The Bulls very much felt like they were in play there. Very much felt like they were in play there. and. So it depends on what your definition of close is. It wouldn't have been easy to trade the wall dang, but that's what they, that's what they needed to do. And they tried to do it. And if they were able to do that, I personally feel like those three players would have, would have signed here in Chicago.
0: Wow. No, that's, that's mad. I mean, yeah, the starting lineup just to kind of roll off to have Joe Keem and those guys and Rose together would be yeah, don't even, don't even know. You can move into the, the Luwal and, and Ben Gordon years. Mm-hmm. Luwal was very heavily involved in the setup at Great Britain for many, many years. Ben Gordon, less so, but he he kind of came to be involved at a later date, post Balls days. How did you feel? I mean, it probably wasn't very significant at the time from your side, but how did you feel uh, drafting two British guys um, around, I think it was the 2004 draft, they were drafted at ben, with Ben Gordon at three and, and Luwal at seven?
1: Yeah, so the, the, the Britain thing didn't really develop or resonate with me until, until uh, later, um, you know, when I kind of started diving into their backstories. But that draft was significant. I mean, it was John Paxton's second draft as general manager, and it was a huge commitment from ownership because they, you know, gave him the money to uh, make the trade to acquire the Waldang with that, his rights for the seventh pick, $3 million to do so. Um, so it was a it was a sense of you know them targeting two players and, and kind of trying to reset the culture and you know it worked. I, I've said many times that O405 season is my favorite season I've ever covered. And it's not even close. I mean the 10-11 season is memorable and really fun. Obviously, the second being around the second three beat was was awesome, but I wasn't the lead beat right then. The old four oh five season was early in my career. I really connected with a lot of those players. I was a lot younger then, so I was a little closer to the, the players' ages than I than I am now. Those guys were great to be around, and it was just incredibly another like undiscovered gem, you know, where they start 0 and 9 and end up winning 47 games and, and making the playoffs for the first time since the dynasty. Scott Skiles is my favorite coach I've covered, and I've covered a lot of fun and, and great ones, but Scott Skiles is my favorite coach I've ever covered. So, so, so the dang the dang uh, Gordon draft was a huge part in in my personal beat writer history. And, and really, really, uh really, really fun season to cover that 0405 season.
0: I was, I was literally just a little bit after. I only started getting into basketball properly about 06. Was that was that Nocioni or was that too early for Nocioni and people? Like no, that? he was
1: a rookie that year too, so that's what I mean. They had four impactful rookies. Chris Duhon would be the other one. He was a second-round pick, and he was a good player for that team. So Nocioni was a free agent signing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had four rookies coming, in, and then Heinrich was only in his second year. That was a really fun team to cover. And, and Eddie and Tyson were still around and both had really good years that year. Uh, so that was, uh, yeah, that was that was a really enjoyable season to be around.
0: Oh, I need to I need to go and watch some tape. Uh, Lewol was uh, obviously a big part of um, what, in terms of my experience with basketball. Um, and he was one of the first kind of LeBron stoppers in Invited commas, I suppose you could describe him as. <laughs> um, he always seemed to love that matchup. And um, I was at one of his camps in the UK at one point. And annoyingly, I can't remember exactly what he said, but I think it was along the lines of he was always the number two to LeBron around that time at that position. And there was always, do you know what I mean, a bit of a jostling between those two because of that. But, you know, how big of an impact, it's probably quite hard to to, to kind of encapsulate, but how big of an impact did LeWol have on the organisation, not only on the court, but in, in the locker room? and and for the organization? Because I think he was, a, as you say, like a pretty critical component of changing that team around.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, just total class guy, both on the court and in the community. Um, did a ton for the Chicago community. Um, and just world, I mean, his world humanitarian efforts have been amazing with his cross-cultural background with the South Sudanese, and then obviously the citizenship in, in your country. Um, yeah, just a really impactful player, really impactful career, and really kind of two iterations of his career. You know, part of that Scott Skiles era that kind of transformed the the culture, and John Paxson's early stint as general manager, uh, and then you know blossoming. I mean, a very good player for those teams, but then blossoming to another level as a two time All Star under Tom Thibodeau, who you know just loves finding those two way wings and given them a lot of responsibility. Jimmy Butler would follow in, in Lual Deng's footsteps. So, um, you know, his trade to the Cleveland is a memorable moment in, in my beat writer career. That was a pretty emotional and powerful trade too. And Joakim Noah didn't talk to the media for a week after that. And Joakim Noah loved talking to the media. He, uh, you know, and I feel privileged to have witnessed some really cool moments with in Lual's career. As I mentioned before, I was over at the two thousand. 12 olympics and that was just you know obviously such a huge moment for him because it was kind of him repaying almost a debt he felt to the country for granting his 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 family political asylum from south sudan and and, you know him getting dual citizenship there and then just you know with chris finch you know leaving leaving that that team at that those olympics i'll never forget the pride that i witnessed you know him being there I, i spent a few days around him in 2012 at those Olympics, so great, great career, no doubt, and still doing great things. You know, he's working with the South Sudanese national team now. He's one of those guys you know always be looking for the next adventure because he's always got a lot of interest. He's he's real he's a real estate magnet. I mean, he's. He's always had a lot on his plate uh, beyond basketball.
0: No, absolutely, man. And we, yeah, uh, we've talked about this in another podcast about that that Olympics. I was at the China game thanks to the the father of the, one of the GB athletes who I interviewed um, who really kindly gave me his ticket. So thank you, Renata, Lawrence, if you are listening. Um, but yeah, they were obviously just so close to teams like Australia and managed to get that one win. But if, if we'd have picked out a couple of other teams at that Olympics, the things that it could have meant for basketball in this country will obviously always wonder. But um, yeah, obviously, I think everyone in this country is extremely grateful for everything he he did. And I don't know how much you know about the qualification process of that, but we weren't guaranteed as a home nation uh, a place at that Olympics, we had to qualify. Yep. Um, and Lew- Lewald has an incredible series that it, I think Hoots Fix recorded um, another outlet here in the UK that, that talks in detail about, you know, that whole history from, from college to, to what he's doing now. So yeah, incredible guy. And
2: Do you have a favorite uh, Lewald memory that you covered, KC?
1: Well, yeah, and actually I was gonna ask you guys, uh, are you guys familiar with the late Jimmy Rogers? You're the, the Brixton Topcats coach. Are Absolutely. Okay, so there's my memory. So uh, here I am in London, and uh, uh, I knew I'd wanted to report a story about Luol's roots, right? And so I took the tube out to Brixton, completely unannounced, and found the gym that, that Jimmy works out of. Didn't have anything set up, just walked in. I was in. there last
0: year, man. So weird. I was there. Yeah. They do it. It's called the Hoot Six All-Star Classic, which is like all of the local kind of up and coming GB uh, men's and, uh, sorry, boys and girls teams. So I, I yeah. can't remember the age groups. But yeah, amazing place, amazing. And Jimmy. Jimmy actually was one of the guys that on the dissertation an incredible person and someone that just the podcast before this, we were talking to Vince McCauley, the head coach, of the London Lions who, you know, he was involved in bringing him into the game and as well as the and all these other people. So yeah, an incredible, incredible guy. So it must have been quite a thing to to see the Bricks and Jim. gym.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, the best part is I walk in and I like I said, I've got nothing set up. I'm just, you know, a reporter taking a stab and uh, I walk in and, and uh, do you guys call it uh, badminton over there? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, ba- badminton
0: so, in Britain's like a swear word. To any basketball people? <laughs> yeah. So I walk
1: in and like the entire gym is like dominated by badminton players, and there's Man. one tiny court of <laughs> basketball. And and guess who's on the court running practice? Jimmy Rogers. So like I'm like, okay, this is amazing because not only am I taking a chance here, a he's here, he's present b i've got this incredible anecdote to open my story because it shows where basketball ranks in in london you know because badminton is like taking over the gym you have got one tiny court of basketball and then uh, you know anybody who has spent any time around jimmy rogers rest his soul it's a memorable experience so i walk in and he you know it's got this big booming gruff voice and he's like who the hell is this dude? You know, the tall, geeky, white dude, right? And and I just walk in, I introduce myself, and you know, he was respectful, but he was also a little bit annoyed because I came unannounced and he was running practice, so he was like, <laughs> he did not have time for me at that moment. But he circled back to me when practice was over, and we spent about two hours in his office talking about the wall, and just a remarkable, remarkable experience for me personally, you know, and obviously great background for my story and I'm gonna extend this story even longer if I don't bore you guys. So this is amazing. So I get back to the States after the London Olympics are over and you know, at the end of our interview, we had kind of exchanged some personal information and I'd given my address. And so it showed up in in the post one day, um, two uh, Brixton Top Cats t-shirts for my sons who were a lot younger at the time. So 12 would have been now years, they're like six and four at the time. So like youth, like Brixton Topcats oh, t-shirts for my sons with a handwritten note from, um, from Jimmy and it gets even better. So then about three years later, they are a little big for my son, three or four years later, my, my younger son shows up at a local basketball camp here and he's wearing his Brixton Topcats t-shirt. Nick Lowry, who I don't know if he's still the assistant coach. Uh, at the London Lions, but he was not the time. He had gone through the Brixton program under Jimmy Rogers. He's a counselor at this basketball camp in Chicago. He walks in and sees my son wearing a Brixton Topcats t-shirt. And he's like, who the hell is wearing a Brixton Topcats t-shirt <laughs> in Chicago? So he went up to my son and asked him about it. And my son's like a young kid at the time. He like mumbled through some answer. So I show up at camp the next day to like put a face to the story. And I and I stay in touch with Nick. I, I email him once or twice a year. And and I don't, again, I don't know if he's still the assistant coach with the London Lions, but he was at the time. And we've just talked about the impact that Jimmy Rogers had on his life and just my one day experience with Jimmy Rogers. So um, really, really, and this is all because of Al Dang and all because of basketball, right? I mean, just to me is a window into like, the unifying uh, force that basketball and sports in general can be and, and how it can shrink kind of a global community.
0: No, that, that's that's incredible, man. And yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, it's always funny. Like, it always comes back to Jimmy. Like, it's, yeah. there's, there's so many stories. Like, they all come back to Jimmy. Rollins. And I
1: spent yeah. one day with a dude and he had an <laughs> impact on my life, man. Just think about the people that, and just think about like, uh, uh, you know, the people that he like spent a lot of time with, how much of an impact he had on their life. And oh. I talked to Nick Lowry about the impact that he had on his life. I talked to Luol Dang about the impact Jimmy Rogers had on his life. Cause the dude impacted my life and I spent one day with him. So kudos no. to, uh, to Jimmy Rogers and all the, all the great work that he did for UK basketball, man. Kudos to him.
0: No, I think that's amazing, man. And yeah, we, um, we were talking to Vince, the, the head coach of the Lions again, yes, the, the last podcast about. We're hoping that there's going to be a documentary about his life at some point. I'm not sure when that will be or who to be at benefits, um, but yeah, I think it's got to be done for the culture and the history of British basketball. He's such a crucial figure, so. That will be one that we'll we'll send your way <laughs> when it comes out. There's there's actually there's a there's a documentary that um, or a short documentary that Justin Robinson, and the two-time MVP of the the British Basketball League, that now plays for the Lions under Vince, um, who was in Jimmy Rogers's set at Brixton. That's really really touching as well. So I'll I'll definitely send you that link because I think you'd, you'd like it. Obviously having that <laughs> having that experience. Moving to the Jimmy uh, it, not not Jimmy Rogers years but <laughs> the Jimmy Butley's years. So again, appreciate your your time today, KC. We watched the documentary from The Score on Jimmy Butler the other day and that talked about his, his contract situation which again you know briefly mentioned where he was offered 44 million over four years better on himself which is obviously very widely reported and one of the things that was in that that I didn't know was true or not was about the fact that ownership threatened to de- decrease Jimmy's minutes and replace him with Tony Snell if he didn't sign that contract and obviously Tibbs you know went over their head or whatever but I, I don't remember that at the time again could be my lack of lack of thoroughness uh, at that point but was that was that true like i i don't remember that
1: um i remember i can't remember if i wrote it or reported it. i remember hearing that um hmm. i don't remember when if i heard it at the time that's too granular of a detail for how much i've covered over my time but i remember remember it coming to light before that documentary um i'm not sure if it was a direct threat it was just like more like hey you know we've got tony snell waiting if this doesn't you know like it was probably like a comment that was interpreted one way by like, one camp and one way by another camp, you know? Um, yeah. but yeah, nego- you know, tough things are said in negotiations for sure. But, uh, again, Jimmy talk about earning everything you got. I mean, he bet on himself and made himself $50 million. So shout out to, to that for, for Jimmy. Right.
2: Uh, absolutely. And a little bit on that in terms of the infamous, uh, the infamous Jimmy quote that, that you, that you tweeted out, um, in, in terms of him saying we don't play hard enough. Uh, this is your job, and, and I want to play with guys who care. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot, Casey. Who, who was he talking about, and are they still on the roster?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think so, and I don't remember. And I'm not trying to evade the question. But um, at all at all. No, it's like, uh, you know, again, I've covered a lot of stories, and <laughs> some, some resonate with me and some don't. I mean, I remember the night that, it, I don't know if that quote is that you're referring to is from the night that he and Dwayne Wade kind of called out all the young players after the law, home loss to the Hawks. That was a memorable night. And then Rajon Rondo kind of, not kind of, he came back at him hard the next day on Instagram and it created quite a fissure in the locker room. Uh, you know, Jimmy and, uh, this is well documented, Jimmy and Dwayne were on an island that year. They, they believed in each other and they believed in what they were doing and the young players didn't really run vibe with them. I mean, they were more in Rajon Rondo's camp and Rajon is a very inclusive leader and kind of looked out after those young guys. But if if that quote is from that night, I know he was upset that uh, Miritich took a couple late shots that didn't come to him. Was it Miritich or was it McDermott? I, you know, again, see, this is why, I don't want to give bad information. That, that story's uh, blending that, in the uh, tapestry of my 30 years. 30 years. years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, Jimmy's, like I said before, Jimmy's leadership style is not for everybody. He has said that. It's not like I'm spilling any trade secrets here. He has said that. And you know, he and Derek and Joakim at one point were pretty much openly butting heads in the locker room in terms of kind of ownership of the locker room. But pro sports, man, it's not always going to be uh, peaches and cream every day, right? There's there's a lot of a lot of testosterone, a lot of power, a lot of ego, a lot of money. So it's part part of pro sports for sure.
0: Uh, absolutely, man. And moving to um, his tenure at Timberwolves, uh, obviously, reuniting with Tibbs again there, just very briefly. There's the, there's the, you fucking need me quote. <laughs> everyone, everyone knows. Um, which, yeah, still to this day, like, I don't know if you've seen the Game of Zone series, where they, where they reenact that, but it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> but what were your thoughts on that situation? Obviously, as you talked about, you know, there's a lot of egos and things like that in, 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 in that situation. Um, but to give to give context as well to that for listeners who may not have remembered, that Timberwolves team were in like the third or fourth seed that year, they were doing really, again, similarly to where the Knicks are right now, before and again coming back, not to mention load management, um, KC, but you know, J- Jimmy was given lots of minutes that year and had the, I think it was a meniscus injury and was out for a little while before coming back before the playoffs. What what was your thoughts on on that scenario? Do you think that was a little bit media led? Um, obviously, Rachel Nichols was, I think, outside the practice for some reason when that all happened. But did you did you cover that, or were you too, too involved with all things at that time?
1: I mean, yeah, I, I didn't cover it on a, on a on a intimate level. I mean, I was aware of some stuff, and I remember talking to people that <clears throat> know Tom Thibodeau really well as that was going on, and just the difficulty that was, you know, for Tom. You know, if you the the, the big takeaway I have, if you spin it forward, is that you know Tom and Jimmy are good, you know, and and so the, their relationship is fine. It was Jimmy was really dissatisfied with the roster. And, you know, I think mean, it's pretty clear that he's, he didn't really respect the work ethic of Towns and, and Wiggins and created a lot of problems for that team. But you're right, they were playing at a high level. So you always wonder like if Jimmy doesn't get hurt, does that even happen? You know, these are the speculative things we were talking about before. You never know. Uh, But Jimmy and Tom are good. And the respect is still there between those two guys. Jimmy got what he wanted. He's he's, like I said before, in in the right spot. And Tom probably is in a better spot with just in terms of being aligned with a guy like Leon Rose, who's been a good friend of his for a long time in, in New York so he's probably in a better spot ultimately too so sometimes you got to go through some difficulties
2: to get to where you want to be do you have a favorite jimmy memory from from the bulls tenure that, that you reported on
1: favorite jimmy memory his would probably be an on the court thing that second half in toronto did he score 40 points in the second half one time in toronto that was just one of the more remarkable individual performances i've seen and it also was, it was so important because at the time, I mean, he was not really known as like a prolific scorer or someone who could just take over a game. And that kind of started the the momentum changing in the other, other direction there. Off the court, Jimmy and I didn't spend a lot of time together, not in a bad way, just, you know, he and I occasionally would butt heads at times. But, you know, we have a respectful relationship. But. His, his my, my memories of him are more on the court than off The, the
0: final section, again, really appreciative of your time today and will be obviously on your, your, your Jordan years very extensively in that second part of the three-peat. And before we, before we move on to the more serious stuff, obviously you've mentioned already your knowledge of the some of the British game, like thanks for Jimmy. Did you know that, uh, obviously you referred to as the Bulls historian a lot on the Bulls talk podcast. Did you know about the um, Dennis Rodman tenure at the Brighton Bears under coach Nick Nurse at the time? I think it was in the sort of mid 2000s, maybe early 2000s.
1: Oh, I did know that because I, I've known Nick a long time. He was the Bulls G League coach. or well, it was called the D League back then. I mean, they were a loose affiliate. They were not a direct affiliate. Of the Iowa Energy, Nick Nurse used to call my home. This is how old I am. Nick Nurse used to call my home answering machine and leave story ideas about the Iowa Energy players on my home answering machine. So I, I, I go way back with Nick, and and so I, I I knew about that Dennis Rodman story. And you know, we were talking about before about the impact of global basketball. I mean, you can say like, Britain basketball, or British basketball doesn't have that huge of an impact, but we've gone into Luol Deng and and Gordon, and I know it's limited in some scope, but you know, Chris Finch is a head coach in the NBA now. Nick Nurse is a title winning head coach in the NBA now. I mean, there's there's certainly, you know, the, the game is not that far away from where you think it is. You know what I mean? So um, yeah, I was aware of that story. And uh, also before I forget, I did look up because it bothers me when I get details wrong. It was not the Toronto Raptors at that 2009 London preseason game where James Johnson hit the game winner, it was the Utah Jazz. And I should remember that because I remember talking to Carlos <laughs> Boozer uh, one time, one on one, and little did I know that a couple of years later I would be covering him on a on a daily basis. So um, the Dennis Rodman uh, stories are plenty full from that second threepeat, as are a lot of the, uh, the the great great stories. It was such a great great team to cover.
0: Oh, absolutely, man. I was I sent to Mark the other day um, the the Rodman documentary with the I sorry I forget his name, but the I think it was the athletic trainer that. Robman was given by Phil Phil Jackson it's like an animated short it was yeah it was it was really really funny but um, in terms of yeah the the at that time period obviously we've all, we've just had the last dance and most recently and, and you were right in the middle of that sort of traveling circus as, as it's been referred to a few times how wild was it for you back then to be a reporter I know you weren't necessarily the main reporter at that time, but I think there were something like 1,600 journalists accredited for the 1996 finals, and it just sounds like an absolutely crazy time.
1: Well, for several things. I mean, so first of all, I was 29 at the time in 96 when I uh, got my first big break at the Chicago Tribune. Didn't have kids, wasn't married, so lived my career. And you know the one thing I always say is like I feel lucky because I was I, I was cognizant that not only was I getting a great opportunity but I was cognizant that I was covering sports history, and so I really took a lot of time several times throughout my working days to kind of just step back and soak that in and let that resonate. I, I knew I was getting a historic chance even if I was just one of several writers uh, at the Chicago Tribune who was covering that team. Um, you know I joked that also you can't view that time without recognizing that that was kind of a golden era era and golden age of newspapers. I mean, I want to say we had more people at the finals in Utah than the Tribune has on staff today, which is, if you think about it, pretty remarkable. But from 96 to 98, my assignments just got a little bit better and better. So by the time that I got to the 98 finals, my assignment was to write about Michael Jordan every day. I mean, we had the beat writer covering, you know, kind of the nuts and bolts of what was going on with the games and the team. We had the you know Hall of Famer Sam Smith doing whatever he wanted as the great NBA voice, two amazing feature writers and Melissa Isaacson and Skip Mizełinski, uh, you know writing whatever they wanted. Many other great writers: Malcolm Moran, Rick Morrissey, Bob Verdi, Bernie Linscombe, Bonnie Desimone, um, Gene Woj- Wojowski, Um, i probably hopefully not forgetting too many, um, but you know just incredible staff covering that. But my son was right about Michael Jordan every day. And, you know, here I am in 1998, I'm 31 at the time. And, you know, uh, the sports editor, the Tribune is entrusting me with this incredible opportunity and responsibility. And I just felt really lucky and privileged. And, you know, he was obviously the most popular man on the planet at that time. So it's not like I was like hanging out with Michael Jordan one on one, but every day I could kind of just find a nuance angle or something that struck me about Michael and there was a cumulative power to covering that story. It was like a Michael Jordan beat and it's funny because years later it, when the Heat first formed that big three the ESPN kind of did something similar where like Brian Windhorse was kind of like on a LeBron James beat for ESPN at the time. You know I felt that I got that opportunity in 98 for 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 Jordan and and just just you know you can't even describe the stuff you got to see on the on on court on a daily basis. I mean, you guys have seen the movies and the documentaries and the highlights and the games. I mean, seeing it in real time was just remarkable. And especially because it was so early in my career and really impressionable age that I was at. So amazing, amazing experience. I feel,
2: again, I'm the lucky one.
0: <laughs> Man, so. that's, yeah, it's, incre- it's incredible. Um, sorry, Mark, I've, I've jumped ahead of you again.
2: No, no, you're all right, man. You're cool. Yeah, I mean, going back to the last dance. I mean, when the last dance ended, you were trying to give Jerry Krause his right of reply. Uh, sadly, he's no longer with us, far as unfinished memoirs. For those who, who didn't hear or read them at the time, and, and recently, if I'm not mis- uh, correct me if I'm mistaken, but you mentioned recently that Krauss had become a, a personal friend. How would you how would you describe Jerry? He, he, at times, the portrayal was unflattering towards Jerry in terms of the Last Dance.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would describe Jerry like uh, like most human beings were complex. You know, flawed individuals, right? I mean, you know, he had a lot of incredibly great qualities and he had qualities that, you know, even he would probably say that he needed to work on. You know, one of them was just his desire to seek acceptance. He always wanted to be kind of one of the guys. And I think that was probably the biggest dynamic that you're talking about the unflattering light in the documentary. And he brought that a lot, a little bit about himself. I mean, you, in his role, you probably can't be one of the guys, particularly when you've got people as popular and as. Lovingly uh, adored as Michael Jordan, and Scottie Pippen. I mean, you're just never going to win that popularity contest. So, it's it's hard for me to give a e- easy, tidy answer to that because I had a professional relationship with Jerry Krause when I covered him, and I probably had one impression of him then. And then, as I my professional obligations extinguished, and we just kind of organically and naturally formed a friendship in the in the sunset years of his life. I have that memory. You know, I, I watched him take my kids fishing one time. So, you know, you can't you can't you can't separate that. I mean, just the way he treated my kids that day and the respect he showed them, it will always be impactful to me. You know, I, I'm I'm still close to his his widow. And you know, at the end of the at the end of his life, I always say this: like he to me just seemed somebody like just wanted somebody to listen to him. He had a lot of stories and he didn't have a lot of outlets for them. And my job as a journalist is to be a listener. I mean, says the guy who just talked for two hours on a podcast, <laughs> but but uh, you know, my job overall is to listen. And I'm I like to consider myself a good listener. I always have appreciated sports history, and I've always appreciated my elders, uh, who are a heck of a lot wiser and more experienced than myself. And I, you know, I, I had a really good relationship with Johnny Bach in the later years of his life. Um, I. Um, you know, I had a really good relationship with Jerry Krause. I just I just enjoy listening to people who have great stories to tell. And, um, you know, sometimes Jerry would tell the same story uh, more than once. I've I heard a few, a few stories probably about 30 different times. But uh, <laughs> he was someone who was um, never really content with his place in history because not only for himself, but more, he always looked at himself as upon himself as a scout at heart and a scout who just over And he wanted to he wanted recognition for what the term scout meant to all the scouts out there kind of plying their trade and being the bushes. And he also wanted recognition for his family because his family felt like he was a little bit undervalued, too, because, you know, he, he was never going to win a popularity contest. But look, dude's in the Hall of Fame, man. Say what you want about him. He got in, in my opinion, a little bit too late because he wasn't around to enjoy it. But I was there with his family when he got inducted into that. And I know how much it meant to his family. You can say what you want about him. I mean, if you talk to Sam Smith about him, who knew him professionally a lot longer and a lot more combatively at times than I did, you, you'd get a different answer. I'm not trying to paint too rosy of a picture of him. He had his flaws like we all, like we all do. Um, but you can say whatever you want about him. The dude knew how to build a, a team. Because those two three P teams, and yes, he inherited Michael Jordan. I get that, but <laughs> I'm not overlooking that. But the way he built those teams, and you know the way the way he sustained success for as long as he did, and you know just look at some of his hires: Phil Jackson, Hall of Famer; Tex Winter, uh, Hall of Famer; you know acquired Dennis Rodman in trade, Hall of Famer; drafted Scottie Pippen, or acquired him in trade rights, Hall of Famer. So, you know, he he did okay for himself. And, you know, you can go back to his scouting days. I mean, he scouted Earl Monroe and other Hall of Famers, uh, Jerry Sloan. So he he had a good eye for talent. And the last thing I'll say about him is like, you know, the fact that someone that accomplished as a basketball executive could then in his second life, well, third life, because he was a baseball scout first, then he became a basketball executive, I spent a weekend one time with him in Delaware in his 70s, and he's scouting for the Arizona Diamondbacks, you know, getting to the ballpark two hours early so you get the, the the right seat behind home plate to aim his radar gun. Like, who does that? Like, if I'm in my 70s, I hope I'm on a, you know, taking a hike somewhere, man. I don't want to be working, man. But the dude just like, he was relentless in his pursuit of perfection. And I personally don't uh, want to work that hard that long in my life, but he, he had a passion for what he did, and to be still working that hard and chasing that when he didn't have to, says a lot about how he was wired and, and who he is.
0: Oh, I really appreciate, it. yeah. It must have been a, a really nice insight there as well to to, to his life, and um, obviously it's a personal thing as well, isn't it? So just very appreciative of, of that of that insight. But to go into the, ne- the next side of things, we we listened to your podcast with the uh, the, the former Phoenix Suns GM. Um, Ryan McDonoghue, I hope I'm not butchering his name there, um, where you mentioned the the somewhat revisionist history from Jordan's production team on The Last Dance. Was it difficult in some ways to kind of watch that back in the way it was portrayed in some instances, at least like obviously you've mentioned before about how incredible it was just to have that footage and just to kind of have the access to Michael, who didn't always give that much. Obviously you reported it in so much detail, on it in so much detail at the time as well. So. Yeah what, how did you feel about the watching it back I suppose as a as a full documentary
1: Yeah it was it was a little unsettling because you know there were some things that you know especially in this age that we live in of Twitter and instant reaction and people were kind of like processing this stuff as it was like breaking news when when first of all it happened two decades ago and second of all it wasn't exactly how it was portrayed at times in the documentary so I felt like we were relitigating some stuff that happened that had been reported on 20 years prior. Um, that said, you know, like everybody else, I was transfixed by it, and you can't you can't analyze this documentary without again re- being reminded of when it was released in the early stages of a global pandemic, when we were all, you know, freaking out and star for entertainment, entertainment and looking for any kind of communal connection. So it certainly was amazing in, on, in that realm. But you know, I mean, just the ending scene alone. Let's just break that down. I mean, when you know, they have to end on this dramatic note and you know michael's saying you know we should have been able to defend what's ours on the seventh you know, on the court and going for a seventh title and you know jerry Reinsdorf was irate at that i mean he gave two interviews to ramona shelburne of espn and to myself just completely firing back at that you know like he's like Michael is had and I had several conversations during that season where he knew this was the end we offered him a chance to come back if he wanted to he knew Phil was gone so you know it was breaking up that way then Michael gets hurt during the lockout he cuts his um slice of tendon on a cigar cutter so I'm going over old history again the last thing I'll say is like I remember talking to several players from that team during that time. And we had a couple of them on like podcasts at our place at NBC Sports Chicago and stuff. And like Bill Carrad had the best line to me. He's like, did we win six championships in eight years? Or was it all like miserable? You know, it's like, it was not, and I get that, you know, they showed a lot of great moments in the documentary and I get that they need to develop like dramatic push and pull and all that. I get all that, but there were a lot of happy times too. Uh, You know, when you win six championships in eight years, it's uh, there's a lot of good times too. So uh, some players were kind of been amused by the whole thing. Tony Kukoc did the same thing. He was like, did we win six championships in eight years? Or, <laughs> uh, pretty crazy, man.
0: No, absolutely that, man. And, um, yeah, I, I coincidentally was reading, um, Ronald, Ronald Lazenby's Michael Jordan book, um, uh, before we even mentioned for yourself coming on. So it kind of concluded at perfect time for you as an insider on the team at the time you mentioned about all the good times, right? Was there a specific season? Obviously you covered the second three P in more detail, but was there a specific season that was. The most special
1: for you? I just remember that '97-'98 season. I don't know if it was the most special, but it was the most memorable because it really did have the feeling of finality to it. Everything around that team kind of felt like it was running to the end of its run, running its course, and it just had a feeling of exhaustion to it. I, quite frankly, still can't believe they won a championship that year. It was one of their most difficult tests, you know, with the seven-game series in the Eastern Conference Finals to the Pacers, and then you know, a really difficult finals that they won in six games. So I just remember that 97-98 season, probably most memorably, just because how I really did have a feeling of like putting a period at the end of the sentence, you know. So nobody, nobody around that team, whether you were a player or coach or even a writer on it, was surprised that, that the dynasty was over after that season. I mean, I was there when Phil Jackson rode off on his motorcycle from the practice facility. He was done. He was gone. I was in the parking lot staking him out as he rode off on his motorcycle as were several other writers and TV cameras, et cetera, it it was over. And so that's why, you know, this feeling like, oh, we should have been brought back for our seventh title. No, it was anyone around that team kind of felt like it was over. And so that's why it was so memorable because you knew that it was the end of a historic moment in sports history.
2: And people often talk about players' willingness to sacrifice in order to benefit the team. And we've seen reiterations since Michael and, and Scotty in, in the early 2000s. It was Shaq and Kobe, uh, D-Wade and obviously LeBron more recently and, and, and Steph and, uh, and KD as well. But looking back at it now, how special was the relationship between Michael and Scotty on the court?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, just ridiculous. I mean, I always say like Scotty is to me one of the most underappreciated superstars of, of all time. And he's one. He's clearly one of the most beloved teammates I've covered, you know? I mean, you can just go from everyone from Tony Kukoc to uh, Horace Grant to, you know, Steve Kerr to you name it. I mean, everybody just appreciated what he did because he, he did so much of the, the dirty work behind the scenes. and was just such a wonderfully complimentary player. And this probably is most spectacularly exhibited by the season that he just took more of a lead role when Michael went to play baseball. You know, he was so dominant that year, just kind of showcasing all his talents as more of the lead guy. So. I felt like I was going to Springfield, Massachusetts on an annual basis. I covered Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame induction, and then was there for Scottie's a couple of years later, and you Dennis's as well, Tex winner. You know, when I was there for Scotty, I remember just, you could tell how much that meant to him, because he felt like he was kind of getting full appreciation. I mean, he always felt a little bit underappreciated, but, you know, he knew how good he was, and when you go into the Hall of Fame, I, I remember just the aura that he projected being there that weekend, and just how proud he was, and it 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 was rightful and, and really impactful for him.
0: Um, I'm sure. Yeah. Again, we could we could dive into the last dance and all the different facets of it all day. But there was one thing that I was that really stuck out to me about um, when you were doing the interview with Phil Jackson for the Chicago Tribune when he released his book. Um, I was wondering, again, having just read the book from Ronald Lazenby, whether you were tempted to ask him about the controversial dynamic between him and Batch, as you mentioned before, who, according to Lazenby, you know, was fundamental, I suppose, in that he revealed that Phil Jackson was actually quite a big source in the Jordan Rules book from Sam Smith. Were you, were you tempted to ask him about that interaction? Because, you know, obviously he, um, rid of batch at one point because of his you know key to the dynamic between him jordan the team and was that something that you attempted to kind of push him on or had you done at any point before
1: yeah i mean that predated my association with the team uh so i started covering them obviously in the 95 96 season and uh johnny bach departure was before then so i'm privy to some of that knowledge but that was something that sam smith would be better to talk to or more intimate knowledge of um, so I did not talk to Phil about that. I remember at that event, I, I I know that the event was largely also centered on book promotion. So we talked a lot about just yeah, the, the, the <laughs> books and stuff. So, um, but that was actually a really neat moment. I remember, cause I hadn't seen Phil in several years and you know, you're on a stage getting to talk to, you know, one of the great basketball minds for an hour. And there was a pretty large paying crowd in, in the stands. And I'm not, you know, I'm not usually in an MC role, so uh, most of my interviews are done more kind of behind the scenes. So that was that was a different moment for me, but it was really enjoyable and really fun to to kind of pick Phil's brains for, for an hour and kind of let him just spouse his wisdom. I mean, he's got a lot of it for sure.
2: And, and having obviously covered the second three people as extensively as we've kind of discussed already, uh, you're then faced, obviously, with the prospect of a rebuild. Talk to us a little bit about how that transition was for you as a beat writer.
1: Well, so the big difference is that I went from being kind of the support guy, the secondary guy, to the lead beat guy, so it was all mine, and I was covering some atrocious basketball. So uh, it was awesome because it was fantastic education for me as a reporter and as a beat writer because I, I always say, when you cover really, really bad teams, they often are more story-rich than covering a really good team because a really good team, you're just kind of like, oh, yay, Ron Harper was great today. And when you cover a really bad team, a lot comes at you. A lot of negativity comes at you. So it was a fantastic journalistic experience for me and really educational and really helped me become a better beat writer because uh, it was my first you know, main experience kind of being a lead guy. I had done two years of doing hockey as a lead beat guy, which also was filled with a lot of controversy and negativity. So I had a long period there after the second three-peat where I was covering a lot of firings and trades and controversial stories so i mean you know for a young journalist and a young reporter that's very educational. But yeah, those were some really, really bad teams. Great guys. I enjoyed covering a lot of those guys. Really fun personalities. Ron, I call him Ron Artest. I can't call him Metta World Peace because uh, you just can't. Um, Charles Oakley was hilarious on those teams. Fred Hoiberg was a player on those teams. I, I enjoyed talking to Freddie. Yeah, so some really, really memorable experiences. And, and again, very young in my career. But yeah, a Lot of negative stories. A lot of <laughs> negative stories.
0: <laughs> I was I don't like I always thought like right, I, I obviously listen to the ball thought quite consistently. I don't know who Ron Mercer is. I've not watched him, but you always talk about um, you know, that being the guy that you uh you know you reference around that time. But yeah, maybe I need to do my homework there again to look at more of his highlights and things. <laughs> But yeah, moving moving to the last couple of questions again. Thank you so much for your time today, Casey. Did you ever cover any of Jordan, obviously having covered him so extensively with that team, when he went to the Wizards? Uh, One of the things that was in the book that I didn't know again was that Charles Barkley was actually originally meant to join the Wizards with him, I think, um, and was training with Tim Grover. Uh, in Chicago to kind of get them back into shape when he came, when he made his comeback. Were you were you privy to any of that? And also another thing that was in that was um, uh, John Thompson, obviously famous famous coach for uh, RFB. Um called him Floor Jordan instead of Air Jordan at that time, which I just thought was, <laughs> was brilliant. Um, but yeah, I didn't know I didn't know how much you saw of that at that time.
1: So, I mean, obviously, anytime the, the Bulls played him, I, I was at those games um, and, you know, I followed it. I remember, didn't he have a 50-point game with the Wizards? I'm pretty sure he did, which was pretty remarkable. One just memory from an in-game thing was he had an amazing game against the Bulls one time in D.C. where he pinned Ron Mercer's shot against the backboard late to preserve this victory. If you're not aware of the play, you can, anyone's listening to this can Google it and find it. I'm sure on YouTube is a remarkable play. So that that play stands out. But as far as the comeback, I, I don't. I've never heard of that Barkley story, so I can't speak to that. I do know that Jamal Crawford, was, uh, who I'm pretty close to, was in on some pickup games at a place here that is no longer in Chicago called Hoops the Gym. And th- those were pretty widely rumored pickup games that seemed to suggest that Jordan was maybe thinking about doing a comeback. And Jamal was a part of those and uh, has spoken about those as really important to him because he idolized Michael uh, growing up like a lot of players did, obviously. So I'm, I'm privy to those, but I, I, I've not heard the, the Barclay anecdote, so I can't speak on it.
2: And, uh, and finally, Casey, we're just going to fire some quick, uh, quick fire questions at you to conclude. And, uh, and again, just to echo Jay, we do really appreciate your time. And apologies, that it was a little bit longer than we'd anticipated. But, um, yeah, I'm best... going to cut you off and say I'm a little He's exhausted. Go. So I'm
1: not, I'm not, not, no, I'll do these, but I'm not sure how uh, effective I'm going to be at rapid fire. I have never done a two hour podcast in my life before. I'm so tired. I'm tired, sorry. Of, I'm tired <laughs> of hearing myself speak at this point. I'm losing my voice. I'm out of water, but I love you guys.
2: No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> we'll make it quick. Um, Bulls balls all-time starting
1: five of uh, that i covered or the whole franchise history no that you covered that you covered oh that i covered uh derrick rose at point guard uh who should be a shooting guard oh michael jordan <laughs> I Joking. i was joking see what i did there uh scotty pippen small forward i did not cover horace grant so i'm not uh, giving him i'm not overlooking him so he's not eligible because you said it's just for people i covered i also did not cover bob love and chet walker i want to shout out the greats that came before me uh so my best power forward that i covered would be dennis rodman and the best center that i covered would be i didn't cover artist gilmore i didn't cover tom Borowinkle. I covered King Noah. So there's my there's my five of that I covered, but I did want to slip in some great history names. Also shout out to Norm Van Leer and Jerry Sloan. All. I want to make sure I touch on all the franchise greats. Cause I really, I, as I said before, I love sports history. I value history. When people used to ask me, when I would give talks at high school is what I do for the Tribune. I used to say, well, you can call me the Bulls beat writer, but I look at myself as the Bulls historian for the Chicago Tribune and every chapter, every season is a chapter in that franchise's history. Uh, I'm not saying that's as highfalutin as it really sounds, I'm not curing cancer here, but like I grew up loving newspapers and I used to go back and read like the microfilm of like old seasons and stuff. And I always felt like, you know, if there's someone crazy enough like me that 30 years from now I wanted to go read about, I don't know why they would, but the 2001 Bulls, cause they were awful, but maybe they would. Like I was the Tribune's historian there. No one else was around. I I got to witness what was happening and I put it in my eyes and words. And so again, highfalutin concept, I'm not curing cancer, but long story short, I love history. And that's why I wanted to acknowledge the other people as well.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, man. And um, the, the other one we have was, was best best balls moment for you that you've covered and why?
1: Best Bulls moment I've covered. You probably get a different answer on me depending on the day or my exhaustion level, which is pretty (laughs) high right now. Sorry, Casey. Best Bulls moment. I'm just giving you guys a hard time. Uh, Best Bulls moment. uh, I'll go with cliche. You know, I was there when Michael held the pose and hit the shot. But it's funny because, like, everyone probably has their own take on it. I'm going to peel back the curtain here and give a little uh, friendly behind the curtain journalistic moment. When you cover a playoff series, not to overstate what we do, but it's a grind and you're tired and you put in a lot of time and hours. Again, I'm, you know, me, a sports writer, I'm not splitting the atom here, but I will will say that when that shot went through, there's no cheering in the press box, but there was some excitement amongst the uh, Chicago Tribune beat crew that we would be able to uh be done with that season and fly home <laughs> the next day because we were tired because if, if that shot doesn't go in there's game seven right and then you've got a few more days of work and you're away from your family or your home a little bit longer not complaining I have an incredible job I'm just saying that I'll never forget when that pose happened you know there's that historic moment that you're processing you're also on deadline writing it there's also a little excitement that I remember looking at another runner going, Yes, like we get to go home tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> <Leather of
2: relief. laughs> what was your what was your best what would be your best interview you've ever had? I know that's a really big question for someone like yourself, but is there any interview that you've done that's really stuck out to you?
1: Just so you're talking individual interview now, right? Yes, yes, yes. Again, you probably get a different answer on me, but you know, I'm trying to s- spray to all fields here. Uh, you know, I-, I spent a full day one time with Tex Winter, the legendary, uh, you know, creator, not creator because Sam Barry actually created it, but the legendary, uh, proprietor of the triangle offense, the offensive coordinator of the uh, second three P team, and just a uh, Wonderful. Again, I love history. I respect my elders and just a wonderful, incredibly accomplished basketball coach, both at the pro level and the collegiate level. And it was great because I thought I was just going to get a short interview with him. And then I spent ended up like the whole day with him up in his office at the Berto Center. And then we actually went out and, and grabbed a drink together, uh, coffee. But uh, um, so really memorable experience early, in my, again, early in my career and wrote a really fun story for the tribune at the time about just all the he had encompassed because he spans a lot of basketball history so you know many many as you said many many great interviews but there would be my answer for today
0: that's cool man yeah last one and again thank you so much for your time and this is hopefully a bit more of a fun one than the 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 more serious stuff earlier but What is your uh, favorite nickname from Stacey King of late? Either the poor, Thadjik Johnson, or Attack of the Burn. (laughs) Uh,
1: I would probably have to go with Thadjik Johnson, because it's just so, it's so, it's so clever, first of all, and it's so crazy, and it also uh, encompasses just really a remarkable season by Thad Young. I mean, he's just playing at a ridiculous level. So that would probably be my favorite current nickname. I thought you were gonna go with my favorite or funniest moment. from the beat because i've got a lot of those but uh, i will quickly share probably my favorite uh anecdote or funniest moment there are a lot of them but and i've told this before so if you've heard me on a podcast before you might have heard it you guys might have even heard it but the day ron artest and again i have to call him ron artest i cannot call him meta world peace got traded to the pacers uh the old practice facility the Berto center had this long hallway um, that led to the exit uh, and players would walk by, down it. And on one side were all the team pictures from every year in the franchise's history. And on the other side was individual, huge frame pictures of each player. And Ron, he gets traded, he gives us his comments. It's one of those rare times where a trade happens and the player's still in the building. So we did a, did an interview with him and he gave us, you know, our comments and he left the interview and walked down the hallway and he went outside. And all of a sudden you see him turn around and bolt back in, and he comes down the hallway, and he goes up to his frame picture, and he takes it and just rips it out of the drywall, and tucks it under his uh, arm, and goes, "They ain't gonna be needing this anymore." <laughs> and he walks out of the facility with his own frame picture of himself under his arm, <laughs> and we're sitting there going, "Did that just happen, man? It was so funny. I was, I still laugh." And I, I've, I've talked to Rod about it over the years several times. I ran into him once a couple years ago uh when he was with the big three that three on three league that started up here in the states oh, he I I were, about that. yeah he and i were just laughing so hard remembering that day man <laughs> he just like ripped this photo out of the wall and tucked under his arm and walked out of the Berto center he stole his own framed picture from the bulls did <laughs> he
0: still have it did you still have I, it at home
1: that, that i don't know that's a good question I, next time i run into ron i'll i'll ask him. that <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's, that's crazy, man. But yeah, no. Again, KC, it's been one. It's been incredible to meet you. Obviously, yeah, having followed your work for so many years, and had had such great respect for you. Um, it's been it's been great and a really nice sort of hopefully trip down memory lane in some instances for, for you as well. Really, really thankful for your time, man. And um, hopefully, one day down the line, we'll. We'll do it again um, with some some more successful uh, re-symbols <laughs> stories to cover as well, right?
1: Yeah, a couple things. I'll, I'll one day it be fun to meet in person. Hopefully, uh, we'll get over to London sometime and make that happen. I love that city, as I mentioned before. And secondly, uh, I'll just close by saying, happy to do this again sometime on one condition: it's shorter. No, I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> Hey, so you you whatever you want it to be man it's fine we'll we'll, we'll 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 throw in half an hour next time don't worry yeah sorry man we did uh, say like around an hour in the email and i was like oh no
0: literally uh, it, i
1: kept man. checking my phone and it seemed okay so anyway here we go so i gotta go cover practice now though so <laughs> yeah.
0: no really appreciate your time casey and yeah all the best for everything and um like you say hopefully catch up another time
1: awesome man thanks guys appreciate Bye, your time KC. thank you
0: very much take care take it easy casey
1: all right bye-bye